Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. If you've got your Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And what we're going to be doing this whole... Uh, summer, semester, quarter, whatever we want to call it, is primarily looking at David, looking at David's spiritual leadership, specifically looking at the way that David, in a sense, led himself spiritually through his life of prayer and worship and meditation. Um, So we'll be looking at a lot of Psalms, but trying to set those Psalms in the context of when they were written and why they were written as best as we can. And part of what we did last week by way of introduction was... compare and contrast between David and Saul, and we're going to kind of continue with that theme this morning. So really the idea this morning we were looking at is David's influence, and I mean that in two different ways. Uh, The way that David influenced other people that followed him as a leader, but also the way David was influenced by the Lord. Okay, but again, we're going to do the compare and contrast again between Saul and David. So let's start in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll start in verse 1. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and David loved him as himself. So this is right after David has killed Goliath. Okay, He's the hero of the day, and Jonathan, the son of Saul, who seems to be the heir apparent to the throne, loves David. Verse 2, Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, almost certainly, this is showing us that Jonathan had some sort of idea. David's probably going to be the next king. And Jonathan is saying, I accept that. I'm fine with that. I'm happy to give up my position. Uh, We're not going to take a lot of time to study the life of Jonathan, but he really is a hero uh, that probably doesn't get enough mention because he's so humble, he's so faithful, he's so surrendered to the Lord. He's not about position, he's not about title, he's about serving the Lord, whatever that may mean. So he's saying to David, uh, David, you're this poor shepherd boy, uh, you didn't even have your own armor to go out and fight, now my dad's about to make you a general, I'm happy to share my royal robe with you. Verse 5, so David went out wherever Saul sent him. David is a submissive servant. I mean, we've all heard this, but here's a biblical picture. Before you can be a great leader, you have to learn to be a great follower. And prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It happens as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now, just pause for a second. This was not necessarily trying to say anything negative about Saul. It was, it was primarily trying to say something great about David and really say, listen, it's like, hey, we got a great king that can kill the enemy, and now we got a new hero who can kill even more of the enemy. We got a great general. So doesn't necessarily have to be a slight against Saul, but that is certainly the way that he takes it. Look at verse 8. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. One of the things that we're going to learn here is when we are not having an experience of God's favor, God's love, God's approval, God's smile on our life, we will be desperate to have human approval, human praise, 
And when you don't get it, it will drive you crazy. And oh, here's a side note. Even when you think you're getting it, it'll never be enough. You'll be a black hole of neediness. I mean, we've all heard this. There's a God-shaped void. Well, if God is not the one giving you your sense of approval and you try to fill it up, even with thousands of people praising you, it'll never be enough. Okay? One commentator named Evans said this, Having lost God's support, Saul's only security is people's popular acclaim. That's a terrible way to live, period. It's certainly a terrible way to try to be a minister. And, and, and increasingly so in this day and age when there are so many people, whether you're in America or Australia, who, who are opposed to the gospel, who, who think Christianity is probably crazy, maybe even evil and bad for our society. I mean, at some level, guys, our job is to go out and meet people and say, do you realize there's a God, there's a judge, and if you don't repent, he's going to send you to hell. Now, you probably should stay a lot more articulate and winsome than that and in a relational context, but that's the bottom line message we're telling people. It's at least part of the bottom line message. It's incredibly offensive, right? I mean, Paul said in Corinthians that the, the message of the cross is a stumbling block. And if I am worried about being cool, being accepted, getting popular acclaim from the people I'm ministering to, it's not going to go well. You say, what about even the Christians I'm discipling? What about even the staff maybe that I'm mentoring and leading? Hopefully they'll like me more, right, because we're in the family of God together. But even there's times where you have to maybe rebuke somebody in your own family, on your own staff team. And if you're hyper-concerned with what do they think about me, do they like me, are they going to be nice to me, you will not be able to be a faithful minister. And Saul certainly was not, and it gets even worse. Let's keep going. Uh, 1 Samuel 18, verse 10. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Again, if you're not having an experience of God's presence, you will live in fear. You will live in terror. You will be kind of panicked by, what do people think about me? Um, verse 13, Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Another side note, guys, is this. Maybe the one biggest best thing you could get from this whole class is if we just see there's going to be this refrain about David repeated, the Lord was with him. The Lord blessed him. He was prospering in all he did. Lord, prosper my ministry. Just be with me. Just bless me. Bless the work of my hands. Okay, that's the, our ultimate hope. So flip over to First um, Samuel chapter 22. And that was all kind of by way of introduction. All right. And we're going to look at a chapter we looked at briefly last week, but we're going to go more in depth. And we're going to look first at Saul's influence. Saul's influence. Okay, and Like I said, I mean this in two ways. First, how was Saul influenced by other people's words? We're already seeing that. But let's go deeper, further into the story. 1 Samuel chapter 22, and let's start in verse 5. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Here, 
Now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? And just pause. Notice what he's doing there. He's saying, listen, if you guys will support me to be king, I'll make it well worth your while. Okay, I'll make you rich if you follow me. I mean, this is a type of bribe. I mean, that's, that's what he has to resort to. He gets so desperate. Enough people don't love me anymore. They don't praise me. They don't follow me well. So now I'm going to start trying to promise them lands and titles if they'll follow me. It's a bad way to lead. Purely desperate. Um, verse 7. Excuse me, verse 8. For all of you have conspired against me, so there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me the, that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. We mentioned this last week, okay? When you start to become captive and beholden to what people think about you, you will find plenty of reasons to worry and fear, and it will lead to just this downward spiral of panic and obsession, almost like an OCD. What are people saying about me? Are they talking about me? And literally, it'll lead you to these conspiracy theories. Everybody's against me. You guys are out there making plots. Let me give you a, an example. It's kind of funny, kind of sad, but I had a friend years I mean, this goes back, I think, when I was a student, and I was one of the student leaders on our summer beach project, and this guy was a, a student leader who led an overseas missions trip that summer, and this is back 20, 25 years ago, maybe, uh, so you didn't have as much cell phone and email access, so you know, had like the one phone, and so you try to time it just right and make the international phone call, you know, and all the friends that knew the people over in Japan or wherever were on the phone talking, and trading the phone. At one point, a couple people were telling a joke and laughing. And when I got back on the phone with the leader of the team in Japan, he's like, what were those people talking about? Were they talking about me? Were they making fun of me? Were they talking about my leadership? And I was like, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think they were just kind of catching up on old times. But he had had a very, very hard summer. He had had, I think, a couple of people on the team criticize his leadership, and he was just suffering. And so he, he became obsessed with, is there anybody out there talking about me? And guys, let's Again, pause, just practical for a second. What a miserable way to live. Because the reality is there probably is somebody out there talking about you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Live for an audience of one. I knew another guy in CO and uh, in the region that he was working in. Uh, there was an opportunity for a promotion, so to speak, coming up. And it really came down to him or one or two other guys. And he ended up not getting it. And he was talking about it with me later and... You know, he was a little older. He'd been on staff for a while. And he, he was good. He was processing. He was being honest. He was being humble. But he just said, man, I am just worried that I'm going to be perceived like a loser, like a failure. Started to say that. And I knew this guy pretty well. I said, listen, I said, if you're telling me you're concerned that you're going to be a loser or a failure, you have no reason to be concerned. Because you're not. You're being a faithful minister. You're in a good spot. You're having a fruitful ministry. Don't, don't worry about that. That's not a realistic concern. If you tell me that you're worried about how you might be perceived, well, I can't control that and neither can you. Now, do I think most people are perceiving you that way? No. There's probably nobody perceiving you that way. But might there hypothetically be one or two or three people out there somewhere that perceive you that way? Yeah. And if you go around worrying about it, you're going to be a miserable person. It, listen, it's just a dead-end way to live. And just for a second, let's flip it. Let's even say everybody is singing your praises, right? But you get attached to that and addicted to that. It'll just be an emotional roller coaster ride. It'll never be enough. So part of what we have to do is learn how to wean ourselves off of the praise of people, the approval of the men and women that we serve, that we work with, 
so we're not having to worry and we can just live for the Lord. Okay. Uh, let's keep going. Skip down to verse 9. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Hittub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, the priest who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing of this whole affair. Now, there's a little bit of a background story that uh, you've probably heard before, but maybe we've forgotten. Let me just refer to it really quick. When David is trying to be killed by Saul in his own household and he runs away, He's desperate. He runs away without any food, without any provisions, without any weapons. So he and his men, they run to the priest, Ahimelech, in the city of Nob. And he gets there and he says, have you got any food for me? I'm on a secret mission to the king. Uh, Do you have any weapons? And he gives him the sword of Goliath. He gives him bread. The priest had no idea that Saul hated David. The priest had no idea Saul was trying to kill David. The priest had no idea David was running away from Saul. And even when Saul is here interrogating, you can tell. The priest is like, of course I help David. I pray for David all the time. He's like one of your greatest servants. He's even your son-in-law because you gave him your daughter. It's obvious this man is innocent. But Saul is so panic-ridden. He's so obsessive. He's so worried. He's so fearful. Look at what he's going to lead him to do. Okay, um, Verse 16. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priest of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing, and they did not reveal it to me. So he's jumping to massive conclusions here. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priest of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priest, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys and sheep he struck with the edge of the sword now there's been a lot of sin in the history of campus outreach and other college ministries but i don't think we've ever had an actual murder praise the lord okay but here is what can happen when you are living by fear of human praise and approval what do people think about me do people like me are people really following me are people talking behind my back What it will lead you to do is use your words to sinfully influence other people. You will start to talk bad about them behind their back. You will start to malign them. You will probably start to hate them, which the Lord Jesus says is like heart murder. You will despise them if you don't think they approve of you enough. They don't smile. They don't welcome you. They're not warm enough. You'll judge them harshly with your words, and it's a terrible way to live. Now flip over to Psalm 52. Let's go to our second point. That was Saul's influence. Now let's look at David's influence. How did David respond to this whole situation? Very differently. Okay, and again, we mean it in two ways. How was David influenced by God's word? 
rather than by people's word. But then secondly, how did David turn around and influence others? So Psalm 52, and if you read the title, it tells us this was written when uh, David heard about this massacre by Doeg the Edomite. So verse, verse 1, Psalm 52, 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. He's like, this sounds terrible. An entire village just got massacred. But I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to fear. I'm going to hope in God's covenant love for me, that God has chosen me. God has promised to bless me. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. Listen, you persevere long enough in ministry, you probably are going to run into some people that don't like you, they don't like what you're doing, and ultimately they don't like Christ, they don't like the gospel, and they'll lie about you. They'll slander you. They'll say things about you that aren't true. It might be a student in the fraternity that you're trying to target. It might be a professor or an administrator at the campus. And one of the best things you can do is not try to take matters into your own hand, right? Don't, don't, in that instance, don't fight fire with fire. Well, they're out there saying bad stuff about me. I'll say bad stuff about them too. The best thing you can do, I'm not saying it's the only thing to do, but it's the best thing, it's the first thing, it's the primary thing, is you should pray. And you should pray very honestly. Hey, God, will you shut their mouth? Will you stop the lies? Will you protect me? Will you fight for me? Will you rise up and fight my battles for me? And I, and I promise you, listen, this is one thing that has encouraged me so much when I've been in situations like this, maybe where you're in a fraternity and you get kicked out, or you're on a campus and you are you know, barred from going to the dorms or something like that, and you start praying about it. One of the thoughts that comes to my mind is, God is so much more committed to his kingdom than I am. God is so much more passionate about the gospel going forth on this campus than I've ever thought about being on my most sanctified day. And so I just need to keep coming back to him, putting my request in front of him. It doesn't mean there aren't practical things I can't do, right? David was doing practical stuff. He was running and hiding. But his main strategy was prayer, and it needs to be ours as well. Verse 6, the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. He's saying, listen, I don't know when this is going to happen, but eventually God's going to win. And so much of what it means to be a faithful, mature Christian, you know, we hear this phrase a lot in the Old Testament, wait on the Lord. And sometimes we're like, hmm, I wonder what that means. That sounds very deep and esoteric and philosophical. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? And a lot of times it literally means wait, <laughs> patience. So much of Christian maturity is patience that I don't have to have the answer to prayer right now. I want it right now. It's not wrong to want it right now. It's not wrong to beg and pray, God, would you move today? But part of mature faith says, I will stay here and wait. Even if it takes hours, days, weeks, months, years, I'll persevere. I'll wait because I believe God will outlast my enemies. Okay. Let's keep going. Verse 8. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I mean, some olive trees could literally live and bear fruit for centuries. And David is saying... I'm expressing my utter confidence in God's promise. He's going to be my refuge. He's going to be my strength. I'm not going to be like Saul and Doeg. I'm not going to trust in my own efforts. I'll, I'll do my own efforts, but I'll not trust in my own efforts. Another side note, there was a 
old Puritan, I don't remember what his name was, one of the things he said is, it's very hard to perform all righteousness and to trust in none. And do you understand what he means by that? It's like, okay, a true Christian is supposed to live a righteous life, right? We're supposed to be very serious about holiness, to fight for holiness. And then yet, we're not supposed to hope in any of our own holiness. I'm supposed to put all this time and energy into fighting to live a holy life, and then I'm supposed to go to bed at night and not hope in my own holiness at all. I hope in the righteousness of Christ in my place. And in the very same sense, David is saying, listen, I'm going to use the brain that God has given me to run away, to make plans, to have strategies, to do all that kind of stuff, but I'm not going to hope in my strategy to live and escape. I'm going to hope in the loving kind of God. And it's the exact same thing for campus outreach staff people. We need to have good plans, good strategies to get onto the campus, to get into the dorms, to talk to the girls and the guys that we've kind of been assigned in our target groups. Use the brain God's given you. Make the best plans you can. Execute the plans and then go to bed at night and say, unless the Lord build the house, we're laboring in vain when we try to build it. So I don't hope in my own efforts. I'm hoping what he's doing. Okay. Verse 9 again. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name, for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. Notice that phrase, you have done it. It's the prophetic perfect. I mean, he's saying, God, you're going to deliver me. I'm thanking you in advance for what I know for sure you're going to do. You had not done it yet, but I'm trusting that you're going to do it. Okay. Now, let's go back to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24. And let's look at how David influenced other people with his words. 1 Samuel chapter 24, and let's start in verse 3. He came to the sheepfolds on the way, this is speaking of Saul, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words, and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. And just a couple of things. We're, you see in verse 4, it seems like David's men are kind of quoting some verse or prophecy back to him. We're not sure if God actually ever said that. Maybe God did say that at some point, you know, through a prophet or something, but we don't have any evidence of it. So it's more kind of like, hey, this is what we think is going to happen. They're making it up, which is another reason to be beholden to God's word. So that if somebody comes to you and says, well, you know, the will of God is, you know, there's a humble right way to say, are you sure that's the will of God? You got a chapter and verse for me? Because if you don't, I'm not sure it's the will of God. Okay. It, it, it might be good advice, but it might not be the will of God. And literally in verse 7, when it says David persuaded his men with these words, that the Hebrew language there has this idea almost like he cut them to pieces with his words. Almost like he was having to violently press them back saying, you're not going to kill Saul. We're not going to do this thing. Okay? He was strong with his words to push them back. Why? Because he had a strong confidence in God. And what that meant is he was able to wait on the Lord and not sinfully take matters into his own hands. Okay? Um, 
Let's just read a little bit of the rest of this story. Just it's, it's powerful. Verse 8. Now afterward, David arose, and he went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground, and he prostrated himself. Listen, there's a place for humility. There's a place with honor. Even when you're dealing with people that seem to hate you and lie about you and do you wrong. So maybe you're ministering on a campus and the so-called chaplain you don't even think is a Christian and they're lying about you, maligning you, trying to make your life miserable. When you interact with them, you, you don't have to lie and be deceptive, but, but honor them. Respect them as a person made in the image of God. Okay. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men saying, behold, David seeks to harm you? So he's saying, listen, it's not true. I'm not trying to harm you. I just had a chance to kill you. But Saul, you're being overly influenced by sinful people telling you sinful things and it's ruining your whole life and leadership. Verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father... Again, see the honor. See, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you were lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Now, he's really honest. I, I am praying to God for God to rise up and fight my battles and win this thing. And I think I'm right and you're wrong, and I'm praying that God will make that really clear one day. But I want you to know, I am not going to take matters into my own hands sinfully. And guys, there's something about integrity. When you're in some type of controversy with another human being, and that doesn't mean you won't ever speak strong words to them. That doesn't mean you won't necessarily disagree with them or confront them. But you say, as far as it goes with me, as much as I can by God's grace, I'm going to act towards you in a way of an integrity and holiness, even if you treat me terribly. I will not repay evil for evil, right? Because the Lord said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will avenge. And when we try to take vengeance in our own hands, even with our words, guys, listen, I know we're not out there slashing people's tires or doing terrible stuff like that, okay? But where are we tempted to get into sin is we want to take vengeance with our words, we want to slander people. We want to malign people. We want to destroy their character. We, we want to publish the evil things they have done abroad. And there's a, there's a way to speak the truth in love, but mainly we need to be praying and letting the Lord fight our battles. And that's exactly what David did. Okay, Verse 13. As the Proverbs of the ancients say, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? David says, I'm a nobody. I'm like a little flea on a dog. Don't worry about me. The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said... Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt with me. You have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. Now, this is not real repentance, but it's at least a momentary moment where, where Saul notices and, and acclaims, David, you're handling this right, even though I've handled it terribly. Okay. Let's look at one more passage of Scripture. Flip over to Psalm chapter 56. Psalm chapter 56. Another Psalm of David. Okay. And here's what the last thing. Okay. The first point, Saul's influence. 
The second point, David's influence. And now the third point I want to talk about is God's influence. And here's what I mean. First, how is God influenced by our words? How is God influenced by our prayers? Now, let me just say this before I even read this. Um, I definitely believe that uh, God is sovereign over everything. God ordains everything. So you can make a case that maybe uh, it's wrong to talk about how God is influenced by anything. But the reality is the Bible presents both truths equally side by side. It's a mystery. We're never fully going to understand it in this life. And we just have to accept it by faith that, yes, God is sovereign and he ordains every single thing that has ever happened. It's like he pre-wrote the whole script of history. And yet, what we do with our lives, it really does matter. It really does make a difference. How do those two things work together? I don't know. Ask the Lord when you get to heaven and maybe he'll explain it to all of us, okay? But right now, we just have to live faithfully in that tension. Let's look at Psalm 56 and start in verse 1. David's prayer, be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me, fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for there are they are many who fight proudly against me. Okay, now, um, when you are struggling, maybe it's just one teammate who you feel like doesn't like you, doesn't respect you, isn't nice enough to you. Maybe this is a much bigger level, something like we're talking about. The university president decided he hates campus outreach and just kicks you off campus and you don't even know if you're going to have a job anymore. Maybe it's something more on a personal level in your, in your family, you're fighting with your spouse or something. There is a right time and place to vent. And there's, listen, there's a right time and place to vent to other human beings. But here's one of the kind of um, things we have to think about in our mind about when and how and who I vent to. I need to make sure I vent to somebody that's holy enough and mature enough that as I'm venting, I'm processing my emotions, I don't drag them down into sin. Does that make sense? Every once in a while, I might have conflict with somebody that I know my wife really doesn't like. It's not wise for me to go vent to my wife about somebody that my wife doesn't already like. Does that make sense? Because it's like I'm just going to put negative gasoline on the fire of her heart. But if there's somebody my wife barely knows, never really interacted with. I said, listen, I had a really hard conversation with this guy. I need to talk to you about it. She can be a great sounding board. Here's the point that I'm going to with all this. God is the only person that's always safe for you to vent to. You can talk to him anytime, anywhere, about any person. And here's the, here's the reality, guys. Whatever you're dealing with in your heart, anger, fear, doubt, worry, pride, whatever, he already knows. The best thing you can do is vent it to him in prayer. Because that's where he has the most chance, humanly speaking, to influence you, to change it. Okay? And he is influenced by our prayers. I mean, just jot this verse down, write it down. I mean, two verses. James chapter 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. At some level, God is influenced by our prayers. James 5, 16. Okay? The fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Our prayers do matter. Okay? Let's keep going in verse 3. Okay, Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack me, they lurk, they watch my steps that they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth in anger. Put down the peoples, O God. Okay. Listen, there is a very big difference in some vague general sense, okay, God's going to take care of me, and then taking a very specific promise of Scripture 
and applying it to your specific temptation, your specific doubt, your specific fear, your specific temptation to covet something. Why am I making this point? Okay, Part of what I'm wanting us all to get out of this quarter studying the life of David is figuring out where are the places in life that I'm the most often repeatedly tempted to sin? And then what are some specific promises that I can claim from the Bible that when I am tempted to sin, I can quote that specific promise to give me a fighting chance to resist it? Okay? I mean, James 4, 7, Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Think about the way that Jesus practiced that verse practically. In the wilderness, when Satan came to tempt him, Jesus had really specific verses that really specifically applied to the exact temptation that Satan brought, right? He didn't just say, I'm supposed to trust God. He said, man shall not live by bread alone. You're tempting me with bread? I got a verse about bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but he'll live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I think that that's part of our maturity and sanctification is being aware, know our enemy, know ourselves, know how we're going to be tempted, and ahead of time, memorize some specific verses that can help you in that fight. Okay, Let me give you an example. One of my sons, when he was young, and we first moved him into a new bedroom in our house downstairs. The rest of the family slept upstairs, so he's downstairs closer to the door. He was a little boy, and he got scared. He was, I mean, every night, it was like he was wanting to come up and sleep on the floor in our room, which is, you know, not great to get a full seven, eight hours of sleep every night. And so one of the things we did is we taught him Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. And we were trying to say to him, buddy, we're not saying you can't come to our room, but why don't you just try this? You wake up in the middle of the night, you hear a bump in the night, you're scared. Memorize this verse, pray this verse, talk to God, put your trust in him. Now, I like to think that it helped him sleep better and us sleep better. To be honest, I'm not really sure I even remember. Okay, But I do know this. Years later, like at the high school level, when he was dealing with some social anxiety with some of his friends, people talking about him, people not liking him, people not, that kind of thing. As I asked him, I said, are you praying about it? And he said, sure, I'm praying about it, Dad. And I'm not sure I really believe it. I said, well, tell me specifically what are you praying? He said, I'm praying those verses you and Mom taught me when I was a little kid, Psalm 56, 3 and 4. When I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. Okay. Listen, When we're dealing with social anxiety, when we're dealing with, I worry what people say about me, these are great verses to ruminate on and make sure I want to let God's word always influence me more than I'm letting people's words influence me. All right. Let's finish this song. Uh, Verse 8. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He's like, listen, God, I know you care. I know you're grieving with me. I know you're weeping with me. I know you see my pain, my hurt, my worry, and you're a compassionate, good father. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. There's the secret to David's life, guys. He was confident that God was on his team. And God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Okay, now, bottom line, summary of everything we've said so far, God's words have to have more influence on me and on you than human beings' words do. Okay, Um, let me give you an example. I've got four children. When they were much younger, they all liked to play driveway basketball, kind of family driveway basketball. 
the two older sons uh, played on little basketball teams for their middle school or whatever. The two younger, a son and a daughter, they didn't necessarily play as much basketball. I think maybe they played one season and quit. Uh, so just think about it. You have a team of two boys versus a team of a boy and a girl, okay? So there's just genetics there, the way that God made men and women different, okay? This team has the advantage. Both of these boys are older than this team, so another advantage here. Both of these boys are playing repeated, uh, repetitively on you know basketball teams. These kids maybe only played one season. They have every advantage. You understand that? So the four of them sometimes maybe on Sunday would go outside to play family basketball. They'd be like, Dad, will you come? I'd be like, yeah, I'll be there, but I'm going to finish my lunch. They would kind of get started before I get there. The two younger ones are thinking, this is just fun time. This is family time. Not the two older ones. The two older ones are, this is prove ourselves time. This is dominate, right? This is like lower the goal down to eight and a half so we can dunk on our little sister. And, you know, and it, by the time that dad would often finally get to the driveway as I'd be walking out, the two younger ones, you know, the score would be 20 to nothing. And the two younger ones would almost have tears in their eyes because they're just getting dominated, right? And the trash talk had begun. But once they saw dad walking out, the two younger ones' face brightens because they knew how dad played. As I'd come down, I'd pull the two older ones to the side and say, listen, I'm okay with y'all winning, okay? But you got to be nice and respectful and kind to your brother and sister. And if not, dad might foul you into the bushes. So you, you better just get real nice and respectful to your younger brother and sister. And it's like the whole aura and experience of the game changed. Does that make sense? Now, that ought to be a mental picture, when you're kind of locking horns verbally with somebody, or maybe you're not even talking, you're keeping your mouth shut, but you feel like there are people out there saying things about you and you're hurt and you're scared and you're sad and you're mad and it's lies, not fair. With the eye of faith, you ought to be able to look into heaven and see your heavenly father sitting on the throne. He's like, I got this. I'm on your team. I'm fighting for you. I will protect you. I may not do it as fast as you like. I may not do it in the exact timetable or the exact way, but trust me, I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to protect you. Okay. Now, um, people's words will have influence in your life based on two different degrees. Okay, two factors. Here they are. Here's the first one. How powerful are they? How powerful is that person? How powerful are their words? Right? If, if you turned on the news today, okay, and you, you know, just, you're getting ready and you turn on the news in the morning and you hear a news bulletin and it says, President Joe Biden has decided that Patrick Lewis is an enemy of the state and he's sending a SEAL team after him. You'd probably be pretty freaked out. Like, that sounds really bad. Whereas, if your four-year-old daughter says, I don't like you, Dad, I'm going to beat you up. You're like, well, that's kind of weird that she said that. I don't like that she said that, but I'm not scared. I'm not terrorized. So how powerful is the person that's speaking? But then the second thing is, how close am I to that person? You might be walking down the street, and you might see a big, burly, strong, homeless person. And he might scream at you and say, I hate you. I think you're ugly, you're stupid, you're a miserable person. And you're like, well, that's really weird, but that guy's homeless. I'm about to get in my car, drive away, I'll never see that guy again. I don't have any real intimacy with this person. It doesn't really affect me. Whereas if you came home and your best friend, your roommate, your spouse said, I hate you. I'm sick of you. I never want to see you again. I don't want to live with you again. Those words are going to go much deeper. How close are you to the person and how powerful is that person? Now, obviously, there are some people in this life, if you're married, 
maybe your spouse, they can say things to you that can be devastating. A mom, a father. But even if you added up all the billions of people on the planet and they all spoke against you, their voice shouldn't even matter. It shouldn't even register in the scales in comparison with Yahweh's voice, your Savior's voice, your King, your Lord, your Master, your Creator. And if He is saying to you in Christ, I love you, I forgive you, I like you, I chose you, I appointed you, that you should go and you should bear fruit and your fruit should remain, there should just be this overwhelming sense of confidence and joy that can never be diminished. We had a place in our... Uh, yard years ago that no matter how sunshiny it got outside it was like it was always wet and my wife thought we must have some pipe burst or something and I got to hire a guy that knows a lot more about houses and lands and all that kind of stuff than I do and he said no what you have going on here is you have an underground spring <laughs> you have an underground spring so it doesn't matter how hot it is outside it doesn't matter how dry it is outside you're all this this ground is always going to be a little bit moist because of the underground spring that's under this piece of land. You understand the point I'm making? If I'm really walking with the Lord, daily feeding on His Word, there ought to be an underground spring in my heart of gladness, joy, happiness, strength, confidence, peace that cannot be shaken by human circumstances. It can't be touched, can't be changed. Um, let me just give a couple more stories and we'll be done. When I was in high school, I was dating a girl. I think I was really a believer. I think she was, but it was not a godly relationship. And I knew one of those times the Lord was saying, break up. I knew God was saying, break up. Uh, the hard thing was the breakup came right before prom, right? It's never the best time to break up with somebody in high school. And everybody, virtually everybody, my parents were on my team, but virtually everybody else, this girl's parents, my youth minister, all of my friends, everybody, you're so mean. You're so selfish. How can you dump her right before prom? I was like, listen, if you know, if you know what we were doing, you'd have been okay with it. But everybody's like, you should have been nicer. You should have hung around. You should have waited. It was really hard when I felt like everybody, virtually everybody was against me. The one thing that gave me a sense of hope and confidence was I really, 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 really deep down believe I'm obeying the Lord. Didn't make it fun. Didn't necessarily make it easy, but it made it easier that there was this kind of internal sense of the Lord saying, you're doing the right thing, and I'm smiling on you. And we've got to go out onto the campus every day with that kind of strength. Now, there's a hundred different ways that you can apply this. I heard a guy teaching a seminary class one time, and he knew of a man who was a Christian who was on the board of a really big you know, company, and this company decided that it was going to buy another company, and as this man was doing some of the due diligence research, it found out that the new company they were going to buy actually own partial stock. I don't remember all the exact details, but in a, essentially a, a pornography company. And so he went to the whole board and said, this is wrong. We don't need to do this. In fact, we've got some stuff in some of our founding documents that say we won't do stuff like this. And everybody else is like, but we're going to make massive profit. And it's technically on the line. It's kind of gray. We're not going to be directly involved. And he basically had to get to the point where he said, if you guys go forward with this, like I will go to authorities and show how we're breaking our founding documents and I'll ruin the whole thing. I mean, at great cost to himself, at great potential cost to his job. But when he threatened them, they backed down. Okay, Now, what gave him 
the moral confidence to move forward. It was this. I know this is what God wants me to do. So what if it costs me my job? What if it costs me a fortune? So what? Small price to pay to please my maker. Okay. In conclusion, I lied a second ago. Sorry, you should never lie in seminary class, but I did it. Okay, flip one more passage. Flip over to Matthew chapter 27, and I promise we'll end here. Okay, this time you can trust me. Matthew chapter 27. Don't worry, we're not going to read the whole thing. It's very long. Most of us are familiar with it, but just skip down to verse 39. And here's maybe the greatest example of all time of somebody refusing to be sinfully influenced by the words of men and rather being influenced by the words of his father, the truer, greater David, the son of David on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 39. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, and the, with the scribes and elders were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him also insulted him with the same words. Now from the six hours, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, this is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Now, this, this passage is so powerful to me because Jesus, in the midst of excruciating pain, and not just physical pain, but emotional torment, literally experiencing the wrath of his Father for the sins of billions of people that he'd saved, like me and you. It, it says, listen, the chief priest, the scribes, the two robbers being executed with him, even random passers-by on the highway are basically saying the same thing. Prove it. Prove you're the Son of God. Save yourself if you really can. You said you could. You said you're the Son of God. Why ain't God saving you? And let's just pause for a second. Was it possible for him to save himself if he wanted to? Absolutely. At any point he wanted to, he could have tapped out. The key to the cross working for our salvation was the Son's willing submission to trust the plan and the promise of the Father and to ignore the taunts and the words of men. That's what our whole salvation is built on, guys. There are going to be times where we blow it. There are going to be times where we get up in the morning, we have a great quiet time, but then somebody says something to us and we fly off the handle. We're more influenced by the words of men than we are by the words of God. But there's great hope for us even in that moment because the Lord Jesus Christ lived this sinful life in our place as an example, much more as our substitute. He ignored the sinful influence of men's words. He was beholden to the word of his Father. But guys, even look at how he got through it. Praying, meditating on the Psalms, meditating on Psalm 22, praying it, venting to the Lord. And God enabled him to persevere to the end. And not in near as a perfect way, 
because of our indwelling sin. But as we look to Christ, as we think about Him, as we meditate on Him, as we worship Him, we will increasingly be filled full of the Holy Spirit. So in the hardship that we're in, God will give us the power to persevere to the end. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're so unworthy. We're so fickle. We're so frail and fragile. We give into temptation so quickly. Thank you for your example of persevering perfectly, sinlessly, all the way to the end in our place, in our stead. Thank you for being our Savior. I pray for all of us there would be fresh hope. There would be like a reservoir of a river in our hearts of joy, of peace, and in confidence so that when we face awkward situations with sinful people trying to influence us with sinful words, we would not be beholden to them. But by the eye of faith, we would be beholden to the words of our Savior. We pray all this only in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 